Missing New York, Oysters and Manhattans. It's 1968 and I'm sitting on a rug in the garden. My mum is reading from one of the American books we got free with our new set of Collier's encyclopedias. Every time she finishes the story of Rosa Toolittle, I beg her to read it again. I want it over and over. Rosa lives in a brownstone in New York and her family can't afford books, never mind a set of encyclopedias, and she's too little to join the library. Instead, she plays in the bright sprays of water that gush from the fire hydrants on hot days. By the end of the story, Rosa joins the library and can have as many books as she wants. She is Rosa too little no longer. I was waiting to join the library too, and because of Rosa, I knew it was going to happen. I also, because I wanted to be there, dancing in the water, then sitting on the stoop with Rosa, fell in love with New York. I'm not the only one. New York is a nexus of lights and hope. We feel we knew it even if we'd never been. Irish people have always been drawn there because of famine or poverty or simple optimism. In the early 1860s, one in every four New Yorkers was an Irish immigrant. I grew up in a different time in Irish history, but I knew early on, the trouble started in the late 1960s, that I would have to leave Northern Ireland. Home was never really home. I was only going to be there for a little while. I played Rhapsody in Blue, one of the only 10 LPs we had, and fed my fantasy with books. A Canadian aunt sent picture books in which children ate cookies the size of the moon and shopped in dime stores. I wanted to be in New York. By the age of 11, I thought I could be Rhoda, the star of the American sitcom, even though I was neither Jewish nor from the Bronx. She was just so sassy. We lived in the middle of the countryside, but at night, I would look out the landing window at the lights across the fields. It was actually the glow of the nearby housing estate and the small row of shops where we sometimes picked up groceries. But no matter. With a determined imagination and the right music, it was the sparkling edges of Manhattan. Even going to Dublin got me that bit nearer. When we went there on holidays, we always visited the airport, not to fly somewhere, but to experience the possibility of flying somewhere. The departures board was intoxicating. Bon being our lingus, my siblings and I would say, imitating the finest Dublin accent, then laugh ourselves silly. We watched the big white and green birds with shamrocks on their sides take off for Boston and Chicago and New York. You see, New York wasn't that far away, but I only got there in stages. New York is a fantasy. And the first few times you visit, that's all you see. Walk, don't walk signs, plumes of steam rising from manhole covers, skyscraper restaurants from where you can view the whole glittering grid of the city. Surly bartenders who say, what do you want? It's a movie made real and you run your own narrative and images. The thing that made me happiest on my first visit was that the Empire State Building wasn't swanky. It was nearly Christmas and the pots of Pinsetti in the lobby were covered in old crinkled aluminium foil. I thought it was exactly as it would have looked if I visited with Rosa 
1968. I wanted to watch the skating at the Rockefeller Centre, look down the central spine of the Guggenheim, see Jasper John's flag at the Museum of Modern Art, but most of my plans centred around food. The hot dog carts, the red sauce Italians, the little cardboard cartons of Chinese takeout, these were as much a part of New York as the Statue of Liberty. For a long time I'd been looking at what New York chefs were cooking and I chose my restaurants carefully. Two of them, Annie Rosenzweig's Arcadia and Danny Meyer's Union Square Cafe, remained favourites for years. I explored simple neighbourhood joints too. I wanted a diner I could call my own. Can you speak Spanish? Drawled the waiter in one place as I tried to eat a sandwich as big as my head. Why? Because this dude doesn't speak English and I'm having trouble here. So I took the order from the man from Venezuela, feeling like a native, and understood that eating in New York wasn't just about food, but about interaction. I returned from that first trip with the tortilla press from Zabar's. You can forget Dean and DeLuca and all the fancy pants delis. I wanted to go to places that were chaotic and scuffed at the edges, and a notebook full of ideas. Not for columns or books, I wasn't a food writer then, but for my own kitchen. I looked to New York for shots of culinary energy. When I'm at home in London, I enjoy it vicariously by checking out the menus of favourite restaurants online. And every week I wait for the Hungry City column in the New York Times. It doesn't cover smart places, but small, inexpensive, out-of-the-way ones. A Uzbek restaurant where the plov is splattered with barberies and black cumin. A Mexican joint where the margaritas sting and English is understood though not spoken. I could never eat my way around all these, even if I lived there. But the column offers vignettes and moods, a picture of the world that has washed up on New York's shore, life through food in the naked city. When I'm in New York, I'm up and out of my hotel, breakfast being the first great meal of the day there, by 7.30am. In late spring and summer, the city smells of hot pavements, even better when they're hot and wet, then you can get a whiff of blossom in some neighbourhoods. And food. Garlicky pizza, hot sugar-dusted doughnuts, salty pretzels. Each day has a schedule. I visit cheese shops, bakeries and tea houses, places that specialise in Indian breakfasts and Cantonese desserts. I eat oysters and steaks and knockback Manhattans. I watch how much pleasure others take in food, like the Japanese man in a cagoule standing at a counter by himself, eating crab in one of the city's food markets, his face creased with concentration. Odd places, such as the Italian where I can get eggs and anchovies on toast for breakfast, and the best chocolate and hazelnut cake I've ever tasted, have become regular haunts. Some of the most enjoyable finds aren't planned, like the Irish bar I discovered at 3am. Run by two Dubliners, it's a refuge for chefs who've just finished their shifts. The burgers aren't remarkable. But the high-energy exhaustion is. And everyone has a tale to tell. Even if you can work it out without hearing it. On every trip I make a pilgrimage to 97 Orchard Street, on the Lower East Side. It's a museum, but not a place of glass cases and dead history. It's in an old tenement building where immigrants lived, and the apartments each representing a different family and era, tell the story of what they did and how they ate. 
I partly go there to be reminded of New York's beginnings and the people who made this city, but also because it's a good area for eating. Even though it's increasingly gentrified, you can still find the food of those who came and wanted the comfort of the flavours they'd left behind. The Germans, Italians, East European Jews, Chinese and West Indians. You can still get Bialis at Cossers, Locks at Russ and Daughters and Pastrami on Rye at Katz's Deli. And you should. New York is still peopled by the rest of the world. A third of the inhabitants were born elsewhere and have speak a language other than English at home. This means it's a compression of histories and dishes people hold on to and which you can taste too. It's not only the edible history or the culinary diversity that seduces though, it's the glamour. Restaurateurs here don't just create places to eat. Go to Mineta Tavern, a 1930s Greenwich Village relic that was buffed, restored and opened in 2009. Pull back the heavy velvet curtain behind the door and you enter a complete world, a clubby, buzzing stage set filled with real people. You're Alice, falling down the rabbit hole. The New York Times restaurant critic, Pete Wells, has said that the city is brilliant at artifice. Restaurateurs here are like theatre producers. They're good at making the new feel old too. Take a cab across the Brooklyn Bridge, a ride as you look at the skylines on both sides of the Hudson that most makes you feel fused with the city and head for Maison Premiere, a restaurant, oyster house and, as the owners describe it, cocktail den. It looks pleasingly worn. Laughter and noise spill onto the pavement. A small garden at the back is full of tumbling vines and a thousand fairy lights. It feels like New York, New Orleans and Paris all rolled into one and has the confidence of a long-established haunt. But it's only been there since 2011. It takes a city with shoots bar to pull that off. Small-town girls like me lack cynicism and aren't prone to ennui. We're lucky. For us, a place like New York is a constant source of wonder. Bright lights, big city. I make a note of places I see from buses and taxis. What does papaya dog sell? Or the, open 24 hours, Alaska food market? What is lunch like at the God Bless Deli? What is more exciting than driving past block after block of neon signs that light up the most intriguing-looking dining destinations and wondering what stories you'll find there. I know New York isn't perfect. It's loud. It can be brash. People are too concerned with money. But it's also misrepresented. New Yorkers are frank rather than rude. Friendly rather than in your face. A complete stranger will tell you that the novel you're reading isn't all that. Another will want to know what you paid for your handbag. You can be anonymous here, but it's unlikely people will let you. Somehow, I never got the apartment where my Chinese could be delivered, where I would set my paper bag of groceries on the counter and wonder what to cook. I got waylaid by other things. But it's never too late to have a New York kitchen. Everything is possible.